This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to the Murderific True Crime Podcast, featuring your host, Bernadette. Today she's joined by special guest, Tim. Welcome to Murderific Podcast. My guest today is Timothy Earl. That's his alias. That's what he likes to be called. What's what are your other aliases? Uh, the Timinator, Nader, um, <laughs> Big Tim, Big Tim. Yeah, that's it right there. This the is, man. <laughs> this is our number six podcast, and it's going to be about John Justin Bunting, also known as the Snowtown Murders in Australia also known as Bodies in the Barrels Murders, which is a weird name, but that's what they call it. He was one of Australia's worst serial killers. He was from Adelaide, South Australia, and killed 12 victims. John Bunting was a very charismatic character. He was also a sadist who was driven to murder by his hate for pedophiles and homosexuals, drug addicts, and disabled. He also enjoyed torturing his victims. He was the ringleader of a small subculture of murderers who killed people they knew. Their names were Valsakis, Wagner, and Hayden. They were a group of friends who preyed upon the weak to murder and steal their welfare checks. Most of the murders were preceded with torture and to get financial information from their victims. The name Snowtown Murders refers not to the location of the murders, but to the location where the bodies were found. This case is different in that the killers knew their victims and they were friends or family with the killers for years. Some of them even lived with Bunting for a time. Okay, so we're going to start with a little information on um, John Bunting's early life story. I found this interesting because he's only a month older than I am. He was born September 4th, 1966. <laughs> so that tells my age. But he, he was born in Analia, Queensland, in Australia. He grew up in an impoverished town, and he had a conservative mother and a very uptight father. He was moved to Adelaide, another very poor area in Australia, where he was born without a sense of smell. Well, he wasn't <laughs> born in Adelaide without a sense of smell, but he was born without the sense of smell. Who? That's weird. That's just a weird fact. Yeah, when I heard this, I couldn't imagine like, not I being don't able know. to smell. I don't know anyone who doesn't smell. No, and that affects most of your taste buds. I mean, part of your taste is how you smell it. Maybe that's well, why, it doesn't affect your taste buds. Maybe that's why he's a serial killer, because he couldn't smell things. It could be. He couldn't <laughs> smell life. He needed to... Um, right? <laughs> but interesting fact. I wonder if any other serial killers... Serial <laughs> killers could not smell. Hmm. When Bunting was eight years old, he was beaten and sexually assaulted... By a friend's older brother. He hardly ever talked about it. He was ashamed deeply and it put him on a path of a deep hatred for pedophiles and gays. So this had a huge impact on him, obviously. As a teenager, he enjoyed weapons, photography, and anatomy. 
He also worked for a crematorium with human bodies. Those are weird. Those are weird teenage things. Yeah, and I, I'm surprised <laughs> now that uh, you know, talking about it now, it's like, huh, I wonder why we didn't see more photos. He was so obsessed with the torture and right so much of uh, yeah. enjoying this. I'm surprised he didn't take pictures. Uh, he was characterized as a good listener. He was very kind and compassionate. He had a talent for talking to people, befriending them, and making people feel very connected to him. Underneath his kind and unassuming appearance was somebody who killed and skinned cats and bragged about it. He talked about how much he enjoyed slaughtering animals at his work, a meat market. He became a master manipulator, obsessed with death, and had a love for plain old killing. Seems like a frightening character. Yeah. So be careful, those people that you think are really friendly and kind. Oh, no. Made my <laughs> mind go, hmm, do I know serial killers? Funton, as mentioned, did have a hatred for gays, which um, didn't extend to actual crimes. He just considered them dirty. That's what he thought. But the, anyway, yeah, 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 those dirty gays. <laughs> So anyway, with this um, obsession with the hatred for gays, he then created this mural on his wall. He, he called it the Rock Spider Wall, where he kept a web of pictures and names of people he thought were, were gay. Rock spiders is a term used in Australia for pedophiles, and he referred to the gays as rock spiders also, hence the Rock Spider Wall. Apparently his wall, it was like post-it notes with the names and addresses of gay people and pedophiles and yes you know, it's like wool string attaching blue and photos. pink wool strands yeah. for some reason leftovers from his mother's yarn collection i guess yeah, yeah the post-its yeah he, he had a filing system he also had meetings with neighbors where they would talk about pedophiles in the area i'm sure he kept his notebook handy mm -hmm. so he could then put him on his rock spider wall the homicides were committed by john bunting robert wagner and James Velsakis, a fourth person, Mark Hayden, was convicted for helping dispose of the bodies also. There was the ringleader, John Bunting, who arranged, planned, and pushed for all of the murders, and he had the others to help with his crimes. John Bunting first approached his neighbor, Robert Wagner, in 1991 to rope him into murder. Bunting used Wagner as an experiment to see how far he could push him. The two became inseparable, and Wagner started to hate the same people Bunting did. Part of Bunting's um, magic, the gift of Gav, and getting people to like him, getting him to think his way. Yeah, Wagner pretty much did everything John Bunting told him to do. I think he saw Bunting as a leader. So Robert Wagner had been in a homosexual relationship at the time of meeting Bunting with Barry Lane. So that's kind of interesting, since Bunting hates gay people so much. And Robert Wagner is gay. Yeah, which was something that confused me. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand if he was gay. Why wasn't he on the wall? Rock spider wall. Rock spider. <laughs> Sounds like it should be some kind of group or song or something. <laughs> the rock, the rock, rock spiders. spiders. Yeah, that kind of confused me. And then I thought about it, but it was like, as we'll find out later, Wagner's relationships in the gay world or whatever probably really married like John's because he was abused early on. So right. probably there was some kind of window there. Yeah. And maybe the, he was just easy to manipulate too. So yeah, true that. took advantage of that. But it wasn't like he had to be killed. Right. 
because it happened to him. He wasn't the cause, right. maybe. Bunting was married to Elizabeth Harvey, and through her, Bunting met her son, James Vilsakis, when he was 14 years old. Vilsakis would help with and later suggest killings. Without a father, James turned to John Bunting as a father figure and trusted him. He was just a teenager, so he was easily put under Bunting's spell. He had few friends and also had been sexually abused in his past by his half-brother. Mark Hayden also lives nearby, was a neighbor, and became friends with Bunting and was drawn into the circle of friends. There were other accomplices. Bunting's wife, for example, Elizabeth Harvey, she ends up dying of cancer, but she was uh, she assisted or was forced to assist in at least one of the murders. There was this guy, Thomas Trevelyan. He was part of the gang, but eventually his demise, he became one of the victims. Not so lucky as Mr. Wagner there. Jody Elliott was a relative of Mark Hayden's and helped with collecting the money after the killings because they would force a lot of these people to give information and then they collected on the benefits. With all these people involved, it's amazing that this operation went on as long as it did. Because it wasn't like one or two people. It was like a crew of four or more. Yeah, it's a lot of people. It is. So nobody was telling on each other, which is weird. Yeah. Tight little crew he had there. (laughs) You know, the fact that he can convince these friends to go along with him shows how charismatic and manipulative this John Bunting was and his need for power and control. These crimes seem to be a mixture of revenge and sheer pleasure of torturing people. He created the revenge angle of pedophiles or junkies to justify his actions to himself and others. And here's a disclaimer here. The material coming up includes torture, violence, and murder. So if that sort of thing offends you, then you need to change the podcast now and not listen because it's just, this is one of the most brutal ones I've done to this date for sure. The crimes include crazy over-the-top torture. He used electric shock to shock his victims' genitals. He used knives, saws, rope, tape, pliers, hammers, double-barrel shotguns, thumb cuffs for torture. Do you know what thumb cuffs are? Yeah, well, I didn't really know that they existed, <laughs> but it sounds like they. Um, what they are, it's a small device that restrains a person. You stick their little thumbs in those cuffs, and it, you can't do much. It's sometimes used by law enforcement, soldiers, and bounty hunters. So I guess it's a thing. Never heard of before. I kind of want to get some. (laughs) (laughs) He also burned flesh, mutilated bodies, and at one time he cannibalized his victims. Yeah, there's a little fun fact that during the murders, he liked to listen to the album Throwing Copper by Live. That was one of my favorite albums in the 90s. Really? Yeah. I was surprised when my parents got married that uh, one of my stepdad's groups was live. He liked to look into the victim eyes at the exact time of death. So basically, he was a sadistic, evil motherfucker. He thought he could, like, see death happen. You probably can. But, I mean, who wants to do that? It's fucked up. I don't know. Maybe it's addictive. Maybe once you do it, that's why you have to right? keep doing it. I don't need to try it. <laughs> Thank you. (laughs) You know, uh, another very scary aspect of the killings was that many of the victims were not kidnapped and killed elsewhere, like many serial killers do. But instead, Bunting chose to murder these people within their own homes, which you don't expect that. Yeah, it just leaves a lot of evidence. With all your crew there. 
Those not killed in their homes were lured willingly into Bunting's home, where they were tormented and murdered before being put into barrels, hence body in a barrel. Right. Not all of the bodies were disposed of the same way. Most of them, however, were dismembered and put into huge plastic barrels of acid in a shed. Sometimes two bodies were put in a single barrel. John Bunting would often check on the bodies to see how the rotting was going and the progress of the rotting. <laughs> I can't yeah. even believe I said that. It doesn't. It's horrible. It's Three. horrible, but it's kind of like a boy thing, I think. A boy thing? Yeah, you know, you see gross things, you know. Yeah, and so you just keep looking. Yeah, <laughs> and if you've got that little tweaked serial killer thing going right. on, I could, I should be careful. I'm... <laughs> I get it. I get what you're saying. Yeah, but it doesn't make it any nicer or anything. But Greed was not the primary motivation in the killings, but it definitely was a part of it, as a lot of the victims had welfare payments that were stolen after their deaths. The gang stole $95,000 from victims' benefits. Bunting called the cash that they got the icing on the cake. And that was only over a period of like seven years. Right. That's a lot of money. Yeah. That, that is a uh, lot of money. Comes in over that time frame. But he was smart and that he did go after a lot of disabled people. Right. People that did have those kind of benefits. As we'll you'll hear about a little later. The deaths were um, premeditated. Sometimes they were planned weeks in advance. The case of the last victim, Bunted offered to sell his car ten days before he was murdered. The victims were first a lot of times they were forced to call their tormentors lord sir and god one of the very first victims was clinton trezies he had very few friends was a very lonely young man with no contact with his family the bunting murder spree started august 1992 with the killing of this man aged 22. trezies was bashed with a shovel in bunting's living room after being invited over for a social visit Bunting accused Trezise of being a pedophile and always referred to him as, quote, happy pants. <laughs> Mr. Happy Pants. Trezise was found buried two years later in a shallow grave on August 16, 1994, in Lower Light, South Australia. Trezise's murder was also on a show called Australia's Most Wanted. Bunting boasted to Valsakis after watching the show, quote, that's my handiwork and revealed details of the murder and disposal of the bodies with Wagner and Lane's assistants. So he must have loved that, being on Australia's Most Wanted. Yeah, it's like, woo look thinking, at me. Thinking you know? he got away with it. Yep. The killings continued on December 26, 1995. Ray Davies, a mentally handicapped man who lived in a caravan in the backyard behind Susan Allen's house, Susan actually becoming another victim later on. He made him a target by calling him a pedophile. Everybody's a pedophile. Right. Everybody must be mm -hmm. killed. Davies was never reported missing. Hence, I guess that's what happens when you live in a caravan in somebody's backyard. Right. In Australia. In Australia. <laughs> down under. They forget about you. But he was garroted with a rope and a lever after being put in a bath. Before he died, they attacked him with clubs beat his genitals, and they even crushed one of his toes with a pair of pliers. I don't really imagine how much fun that would be. No, I can't even stand, I can't stand any pain. Yeah. Like, if you pinch me, I'd be like, I give up everything. <laughs> I'm going to tell on everyone. <laughs> My firstborn, yeah. <laughs> 
Elizabeth Harvey participated in these killings with Wagner. Balsaki's mother, who died of cancer in 2001, was present. The body was dumped in a hole in the backyard. Bunting sold Ray Davies' caravan and accessed his bank account also. So it sounds like all of his friends look up to him, but they're also afraid of him. And then when he starts killing people around them, I well, mean, yeah, it's like you don't really want to. What can they do? Back out on that, right? <laughs> will I be next? Right. Suzanne Allen, forty-seven, made the mistake of becoming infatuated with Bunting, and that would cost her her life. She was a friend of Bunting's. She died some time after Davies. Her remains were found buried above his garden of the house at Salisbury North. Her remains were wrapped in 11 different plastic bags. Death was concealed by the accused, and they kept getting her pension paychecks, but they later claimed she died from a heart attack. Yeah, I guess that later on that came up in the trial, like that's one of the reasons why uh, the jury couldn't decide 100% on her death being a murder. Right. Because so nobody got convicted of that murder because maybe it was a heart attack. Yeah. Allen and former victim Davies were buried in the same hole Bunting had dug in his backyard. The next victim was Michael Gardner, another teenager. He was 19. His death occurred in August of 1997. He was an openly gay man, murdered after suspicion ar arose that he was a pedophile. Everybody's a pedophile. Everyone. Pedophile. Wouldn't you like to be? No. I don't Sorry, want to. I was a little sick. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he was a cross-dresser, obsessed with hygiene and cleanliness. As Bunting and Wagner strangled him, they forced him to remain standing until he died. Which, yeah. Yeah, that's, I'm dying. All I want to do is sit down. <laughs> no, not to make light, but um, just, yeah. what, one guy's got his hands around the neck while the other guy's got his hands under his armpit standing him up. I don't know. Out. It's just bizarre. It's crazy. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Barry Lane, 42, died in October of 1997. He was a gay man and a cross-dresser who had been in a relationship with Wagner at the time. He was also a pedophile. Bunting first met them in 1991. Trevelyan was a later boyfriend of Lane's. I know it's a little bit confusing, but they all knew each other and they all had relationships in within this bunch of people. Yeah, a little close-knit circle. It's like, mm -hmm. Lane, what would have happened if he hadn't got caught? Would he have, would he have anybody left in his world? I you don't know, it think seems so. like little by little, it's like they just right. were dying off. Yeah. Lane had been tortured by having his toes crushed with pliers by Wagner and Bunting. 
His body was wrapped up in a carpet before being placed in a barrel. I think we talked about this. Barry Lane was actually a convicted pedophile who had picked up Wagner when Wagner was 13 years old and was his lover for six years. Yeah. When I first started going over this stuff, that was a very confusing fact for me. I didn't get Mm -hmm. why Wagner was got off the hook. But then I had an epiphany, I guess, where it's like he was a fellow victim. Barry Lane's family reported him missing. The police checked his bank account and saw that regular withdrawals were being taken out. They set up surveillance at the bank and saw Robert Wagner taking money from the missing man's bank account. Next on the list was Thomas Trevelyan. You've heard his name mentioned before. He was 18 and took place once again in 1997. He was a paranoid schizophrenic, easily persuaded, which Bunton loved. That was his prime target. He suffered hallucinations and believed the Grim Reaper was going to kill him. I guess he was right. Yeah. <laughs> Grim Reaper was what, five, six, and <laughs> went by the name of John. He was found hanging in a tree near Kearsbrook in Adelaide Hills and was assumed that he had committed suicide. He had helped in the murders of Barry Lane, but was killed because he was discussing crimes with others. You know, if you're working in a circle of people doing bad things, you probably shouldn't talk about it. One of the next victims was Gavin Porter, and he was 29, killed in April of 1998. He was a heroin addict and a friend of Velsaki's. He moved into Bunting's home. Velsaki's and Porter were both on a methadone program. Bunting chose him to be the next victim because he was pricked by a discarded syringe in his living room on the couch, and he got pissed, basically. On the morning of Porter's death, he was working on his car and was still under the influence of drugs from the night before. He fell asleep in the back seat of the car and was strangled by Bunting and Wagner. Apparently, Velsakis was shocked because this was his friend, and he became terrified of Bunting at that point. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't so, want to close my eyes. Or... No. He, he, no wonder he was like a drug addict. He couldn't deal with what was going on around yeah. him. Great hallucinations on that. So help me with this last name, because I've had a hard time pronouncing Yod? it. Yod? Yod. Y-O-U-D-E. So take it as you want. But Troy Yod, we're going to call him. He was 21, and his murder occurred in September of 1998. He was Velasquez's half-brother, and he was the son of Elizabeth Harvey, and was living with them at the time in Bunting's Murray Bridge home. Troy Ude, 21, was murdered in September of 1998. He was Velasquez's half-brother, the son of Elizabeth Harvey, and they were all living together at the home of John Bunting in Murray Bridge Lane. <laughs> oh my God, Murray Bridge Lane was on Happy Hills in Sunnybrook, Maryland. They were in Australia. Yeah. So Velasquez was the half brother and son of Elizabeth Harvey. He was living with them at John Bunting's Murray Bridge home. Now, this was the first murder that Velsakis participated in. So James admitted to John Bunting that his half-brother had molested him when he was 13 years old. And Bunting responding to this by um, setting up Ude's murder. The group went to Ude's house, dragged him from his bed, tormented him, then called him. They didn't call him. They killed him. <laughs> killed him dead. And they disposed of the body. Handcuffs, gags, and... Uh, you know, once again, this toe squeezing with the pliers, it seems to be a theme. 
but he had his toes crushed. And before he died, he was forced to apologize for um, sexually abusing Velasquez and to make sure that they got this confession, Wagner stood on Yud's chest. James Velsakis was devastated that at this point. He thought John Bunting might kill him next if he didn't go along with the things that were, that were going on. He was using drugs heavily and he couldn't deal with the situation. So it's hard to like think about John Bunting moved into his home, got involved with his mother, and then just started killing people, and he was kind of just, like, stuck in that situation. Yeah, because I can imagine, you know, first he got sucked in, but then you, the light bulb goes off, you wake up, it's like, oh, my God, what am I doing? What's, yeah. what's going on in my world? Give me some drugs. <laughs> Fred Brooks went missing next. He was 18 years old. The torture really started picking up at this point. He disappeared in September of 1998. He was an intellectually disabled son of Jody Elliott, a woman in love with John Bunting. He was chosen because he was an easy victim, lured to the house to be attacked and brutally tortured. He was given electric shocks to his testicles and had a lit sparkler shoved into his penis. His toes were crushed by pliers. Like, what the fuck is up with this? And <laughs> Every time I see a pair of pliers, now I'm going to think about my toes. <laughs> no. And his nose and ears were burned by cigarettes. Eventually, they stuffed a rag in his mouth and let him choke to death. His voice was tape recorded to help cover his disappearance. And that was the thing, too. He, John Bunting would record people saying, I'm fine. I decided to move away. Don't worry about me. Yeah, which helped perpetrate the idea that these people were still okay. Yeah. Hence, they able to be, their checks still getting cashed. Right. And the seven-year span before they got caught, probably. Right. Gary O'Dwyer, 29, died in November 1998. He was a man disabled in a car accident, and he was on a pension. O'Dwyer was a stranger picked because he was an easy target. He was killed in the home on Francis Street by Bunting, Wagner, and Belsakis. They visited O'Dwyer for a few drinks. O'Dwyer was grabbed, handcuffed, beaten, whipped with a belt, and given electric shocks. You know, I was just thinking um, when we were talking about Fred Brooks there with the uh, cigarette burning and all that, you mm -hmm. know, it's one thing to hear about it, but if you stop and think about it, when I you know. just like touch an iron or hit the burner on your stove, that's just an accident happening but when somebody's putting something out on your skin yeah these victims these this, deaths this must have been horrible are above and beyond i can't even comprehend just like torture sessions i know it's like so easy just to talk about it but when you actually take a minute and think about it uh -huh. and think about what these people were going through it's like pretty gruesome pretty gruesome this guy was a sick mother poop head <laughs> Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was um, trying to think of like a G-rated yeah. thing to say, but so <laughs> um, I guess the one thing I'm taking away is be careful who you choose for friends. Right. No charismatic individuals. Right. All right. So here we are with Elizabeth Hayden, 37. Your death occurred in November of 98. She was one of those killers, you know, here again. Part of that inner circle that went right. sour. She was Mark Hayden's wife. Uh, she was killed by Bunting and Wagner in her home while her husband was out. She knew too much about what was going on. So yeah. Bunting just wanted to get rid of her. 
had to go loose lips sink ships i guess uh, um, <laughs> she was tortured and killed in her home before her body was put into a barrel mark was later shown his wife remains and he laughed and didn't appear upset she was close enough to this group though that her disappearance alerted the police to something weird might be happening which at, initially i was kind of like why her all of a sudden why did that spark it but yeah, she must have been talking too much. I guess all of the bodies except the first two were being put in barrels. The police were told by her husband that she just took off and they didn't know where. But right. they had had a fight or something. Yeah. She packed up and uh, neighbors saw Bunting and his friends loading garbage bags into Elizabeth's Land Rover. So, and then the Land Rover went missing after that. Yeah, which. I think I was reading later on, it was discovered, they found it or something. Yeah. Maybe that helped with the investigation, but... Um. The next victim was David Johnson, who was 24, and he died May 1999. This was Valsaki's stepbrother, and he was murdered by Bunting in the bank building after being lured there by Valsaki's. He was the only victim who was killed in Snowtown, and he was the final victim. Johnson was lured to the empty bank by Valsaki's on the pretense of buying a computer, and Bunting and Wagner lay in wait. Johnson was strangled, handcuffed, and forced to read a script for a recording. They took his financial information, and Wagner and Valsaki's left Bunting alone with him to try to get some money. Johnson gave them the wrong financial info, and when they came back, Johnson was dead. Wagner was upset that he hadn't gotten to, quote, play, so they dismembered Johnson. They took parts of his flesh, fried them, and ate them together as one more way to have fun. Sunday fun day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the last taboo, pretty much, cannibalism. So. Yeah, what's after that? You Nothing. Know, it was like, he was ultimately another barrel victim. <laughs> The investigation, it really started with Elizabeth Hayden's disappearance or death. Her brother kind of got a little suspicious and reported her missing within days of her going missing. He didn't believe the husband, Mark's story or explanations of her disappearance. I think they might have changed up a little one too many times. Yeah, the different stories. weren't quite uh, the same. The police found it suspicious that her husband had not reported her missing. There's um, a clue right there. Yeah. <laughs> Something's up here. Why don't we want her found? Elizabeth Hayden was connected to all the murders, so they were all watched closely once police started the investigation. They installed a listening device in Mark Hayden's house. After um, Hayden had rented the bank out, all the uh, unfamiliar movement in cars coming and going near this unused banks caused police to want to check out the location. That's where they saw Elizabeth Hayden's Land Rover out front of the bank also. And this investigation was like five months long. They were just recording them the whole time. And I think that John Bunting got wind of the investigation and that's why they moved the barrels in the first place yeah. to the bank. Yeah. Yeah. The bank was located in Snowtown. The police found eight bodies stored in the vault on May 20th, 1999. They also found the tools involved in the torture. I read that when the police went in, there was a wall of black plastic 
over the doors and there was like a slit in the middle for them to walk yeah. in and then yeah. they could smell like death. The thing that got me was like they showed a picture of an open barrel and it just had like a hand and like a foot you could see in there. And it was uh -huh. like the cops must have been like, What? Oh, yeah. One of the, the detectives on? were like, You could tell they just wanted to <laughs> upchuck. There were two more bodies that were found in Bunting's um, backyard in Adelaide. The examiners did attempt to identify the, the dead bodies, but they were mummified rather than dissolved because. The killers, in their divine wisdom, had used the hydrochloric acid instead of hydrofluoric acid, which one eats the body away and the other just mummifies it, which probably didn't help their case. Rookies. Yeah, rookies. <laughs> they found six barrels with eight victims. Police arrested and charged Bunting, Wagner, and Valsakis and Mark Hayden on May 21st, 1999. The criminal trial started... And it was pretty disturbing because Valsakis quickly turned on all the others and he was given a lesser sentence. He pretty much told investigators everything and he's the one who gave most of the evidence against everyone in the trials. He apologized for what he had done. He was the youngest and basically Bunting was his stepdad. So he was very influenced by that. He had nowhere to turn. Of course, he could have gone to the police, but he didn't. So there's yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's probably still a little bit of self-preservation. It's like, oh, my God, what have I done? Go to the police. Yeah. It's like. I mean, he did. He was involved in the last crimes. But at the same time, I don't think he's as responsible as the others. We were talking about the criminal tiles and uh, Bunting and Wagner ended up going to court together. They were perceived as being very cold, calm and collected as they spoke about their victims. Bunting's never showed sorrow, fear, remorse, or any emotion in court. And in a huge show of contempt to everyone, he was actually reading a book during his sentencing, barely looking at them, looking as they uh, read out the jail time. Basically just a huge fuck you to everyone involved, you know? It's like... Yeah. Obviously, he didn't care about those victims at all. No. Um, the trial lasted 12 months. It was the longest in the history of South Australia, there were 227 witnesses, 17,000 pages of transcripts, and a budget of $15 million. Wow. Holy cow. The trial began October 14th, 2002, and three jurors even had to withdraw because they, the evidence was so overwhelming, they couldn't do it. They couldn't even listen to it. They were like, yeah. I can't do this. Makes you want to do jury duty, huh? I know. <laughs> I kind of want to. I know it is kind of like intriguing, but uh, you do take run the course of like, you know, once you see this stuff, you can never go back. It takes mm -hmm. a part of your innocence of a human away. Right. So you got to kind of be pretty strong, especially, I guess, if you're going to do a serial murder case. So the trial took, what was it, like 12 months, did we say? Mm -hmm. And it came down to the sentencing in October. September of 2003, Bunting was sentenced to 11 consecutive life sentences with no parole. So he's never getting out? No, if the system works the way it should. <laughs> Belsakis confessed to four murders, including his half-brother and stepbrother. He was the first one tried out of the bunch. He was also sentenced to life with a minimum of 26 years. He was held in isolation in an unidentified South Australian prison from June 21st, 2001 on. 
Wagner got life without parole. He was convicted of 10 murders. After sentencing, he said, quote, pedophiles were doing terrible things to children. The authorities didn't do anything about it, and I decided to take an action. Thank you. Unquote. Basically, that's bullshit. They killed because they wanted to. And yeah, they, they got the a money. taste for it, and it was lucrative, and uh, right. they weren't getting caught. So let's keep it going. Mm-hmm. Mark Hayden, he got 25 years in jail with an 18-year minimum. The uh, jury actually deadlocked on the three charges of murder, and he was eventually charged that he was charged with. But Hayden pleaded guilty to helping dispose of the seven bodies. The judge, Justice Brian Martin, said, quote, The men were in the business of killing for pleasure and were also incapable of true rehabilitation. During and after the case, there were 250 suppression orders to prevent any publication of the details of this case, basically like a gag order in the U.S. In early 2011, the judge lifted all the orders so the movie Snowtown Murders could be made, which is a super scary movie because it's pretty close to accurate. Yeah. And the acting's really good. It's scary. The notoriety of the murders created a short-term boost for the tourism going to Snowtown. According to the people living there for a couple of years, there was a steady stream of visitors to stop and photograph the building where some of the murders happened. I would. I'd take pictures. Well, yes. I mean, it's like if if you're taking a little road trip. I mean, it's kind of like... uh, Like creepy. Oh, what's that place in Arizona with the UFOs? Roswell. We did a drive out to Texas. We went through Roswell. We had to stop and right. see some of the attractions, you know. A little different story there, but and kind of weird that people would find it fascinating. Mm-hmm. But I think people were fascinated by, you know, how the victims were found. So, like, horrified and scared at the same time. Yeah, they, you know, there's that fascination, the horrification, the scaredness. It makes it seem like, I got to go check this place out. So that really kind of started taking place after the movie was released released in 2011 there. It did create a lasting negative stigma for the community, and uh, they discussed at one point changing the name of Snowtown to Rosetown, but no further steps were taken. I guess uh, the small drawer of the Snowtown attraction. Who wants a town named Rosetown anyway? Rosetown, and why Rosetown? That was like, <laughs> I'm like kind of curious, but... Another story, another podcast. In 2012, one shop in Snowtown was selling souvenirs about the murders. They had magnets saying Snowtown, South Australia. You'll have a barrel of fun. It's terrible. Oh, my God. (laughs) Anybody out there have one of those magnets? Take a picture and send it. I don't know. (laughs) The house in South Barry North was owned by South Australians Housing Trust and has been destroyed. A unit for the elderly has been put up in its place and a plaque for the victims was installed to remember them by. Okay, let's go visit Grammy. I was thinking about that one <laughs> a little bit earlier today when it's like, oh, that must be a weird plaque. Mm-hmm. How many people that actually walk by it? How many plaques do you see when you're walking into a building and it's like, you don't really stop and read it? Right. So the memory of these people, but if you did stop and read it, it's like, wow. Yeah, now I want to know what it says. I'm going to look for that. We're going to have to look for that (laughs) plaque, yeah. It is interesting how these crimes 
could come about in Adelaide. Well, is it really interesting or as we go to find out that it's interesting, like, because I don't know, because there were so many murders and they all knew each other. How did that even come about? It's kind of interesting. Yeah. And I guess, you know, if you look at the town, it does have many drug and alcohol addicts living there. So that's probably a nice base to draw from if you're right. looking for people to play with. <laughs> clean up these dirty pedophiles oh my god so it was like an environment i don't know i read about it but it was an environment of physical abuse violence and neglect and sexual abuse there were generations of welfare dependents so lots of poverty family breakdown and so people were just unemployed kind of like the ghetto life yeah that's where my mind was going i was just going to say it kind of makes me think of like if i had to liken it to something here in the states my mind goes to like the what I grew up maybe like thinking about 70s ghetto. It was right. just very drug, crime, low mm-hmm. income, People on welfare. just trying to make the best life they could, but being forced to take these actions that make life harder and aren't always correct. In this sort of atmosphere, the restraints of society failed to kick in. Evidence from the trial showed that some of the killer's friends knew murders were going on, but no one reported it to the police. In fact, dozens of people knew, and they didn't even care, which shows the total breakdown of society in this one place. Maybe this was just the perfect community or breeding ground for these crimes to happen. So that draws us to an end of episode six. Thank you, Tim, for hosting. Well, thank you for having me. (laughs) Again, thank you so much for listening. If you want to help the small podcast by leaving a rating and comment wherever you are listening and also telling other true crime fanatics about this podcast, that would be amazing. Bye. Bye. Just want to give a little shout out to a new and to the point podcast named Ohio Valley True Crime Podcast. You can follow them at OV True Crime on Twitter and on Instagram at OV True Crime. You can listen to them on Stitcher, Podbean, or iTunes. Again, OV True Crime. Thank you for listening to the Murderific True Crime Podcast. Please leave us a comment on Podbean, iTunes, or at murderific.com. Please follow us on social media at Instagram at Murderific Podcast or Twitter and the handle is Murderific BPC or Tumblr at Murderific Podcast. Feel free to help with starting costs with Patreon and a link for that is on the webpage. Until next time, we'll be executing podcasts one crime at a time. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. 
Granger, for the ones who get it done. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.